If you're at all active in the construction space on Instagram, there's a good chance you've come across the account Building Science Fight Club. And if you've had the good fortune to see some of those enlightening posts, then you know the work of today's guest, Christine Williamson. Christine is one of the top minds in the field of building science. She travels the continent consulting for architects and developers, and also forensically investigating building failures. A few of her projects include the restoration of Belvedere Castle in New York's Central Park, forensic investigations of building failures at the air traffic control tower of LAX, and also the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, Colorado. Not a bad place to get called out to. And of course, her other project you may know her for is her Instagram account, Building Science Fight Club where she takes her wealth of knowledge and distills it into actionable, insightful lessons that just about anybody can understand. This is also the second part of our series featuring women leaders in the industry. Especially excited to have Christine on the show. I've wanted to visit with her for a while. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Just two things though before we start. First, let us know what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of, drop us a line at hello at buildingoptimal.com or send us a message on Instagram. And secondly, I want to take a second to thank the two people who make these episodes happen. Felipe Linero, who's our sound engineer, and Juan Camilo Buitrego, my assistant producer, who also works for my nonprofit out of Colombia. And thank you guys for listening. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so Christine, I think I want to start this off with a little bit of an opener because you know we're doing this series on women leaders. And when I think who's up there at the top, you know, doing amazing things, your name definitely comes front and center to mind. Um, You're definitely one of the top thought leaders in the building science space. And, you know, through your Instagram page, you're educating a lot of people and making concepts understandable even for uh hopeless people like me (laughs) so how did you arrive at this point what's your journey oh well my background is in architecture actually and um when i was still in architecture school i had the good fortune of working for a fantastic architect in new york city called chris benedict who speaking of of wonderful female leaders in the profession uh, she is at the top. She is a real leader. She uh, started designing passive houses, multifamily passive houses in New York City long before it was the the cool thing. She was way ahead of the curve with that. And actually, even even prior to to doing buildings that were that met the passive house standard, she was designing extraordinarily energy efficient buildings in New York City um, at the time. And I got how I got connected with her was she was speaking at a conference and I went as a student to hear her speak and sat in the front row and introduced myself to her afterwards in the hopes that she would 
remember me so that later when I applied for a job, she would be able to put a face to a name and I'd have a better chance of getting an internship or a job with her. But what ended up happening was she offered me a job on the spot. I had no experience. I had no portfolio. I had nothing, but she just took a chance on me. So I started working for her first for the summer and then full time. And that's where I learned that where, where I was really interested was this space where design meets construction and that you can have a lot of really great ideas about what you want a building to look like and how you want it to perform. But if you can't get somebody to build it that way and you don't understand how it's being built, you're not going to be able to achieve those objectives. And that's especially true if you're trying to do anything extraordinary from an energy perspective, but it's also true for all kinds of, in, in all kinds of ways. So that's where I learned the, the magic of construction. Chris gave me my first hard hat and I spent a lot of time in the field. It was not glamorous work at all, but it was, um, I was having the time of my life. It was the best job I ever had. It was, uh, it was wonderful. And Chris was a great teacher and teacher and mentor. And anyway, so that's how I got my start really in the, in this sort of space between, between architecture and construction. And after, after I graduated, I went on to work in, in consulting, which was great because I got a lot of, um, a lot of experience on a lot of different types of projects. I think one of the challenges for architects and also for builders, a lot of the time is that they're really only working on one or two projects at a time. And those projects can span multiple years. So you learn a lot, yes, but um, you learn a lot about a lot of different things. There's a lot that goes into building a house um, or, or, you know, a commercial building or whatever. Uh, but you're only at the end of even a substantial period of time, at the end of, say, 10 years, you've only really worked on maybe 20 or 30 different projects. Whereas if you, if you're working in consulting, um, I mean, heck I can work on 20 or 30 projects in, you know, in, in half a year, less than that even. And so you, you see a lot, but I mean, that said, I'm focusing only on one thing. I'm focusing only on the enclosure. So all of these other things that architects have to know about and builders have to know about, I, I don't know about at all. Um, I only know about enclosure design, but I like it a lot. And I think that there's uh, now that I've gotten into teaching more, there's there's value in in this sort of breadth of experience that I'm able to give to people that otherwise would have to spend many 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 years to acquire this this knowledge. It's not that they're. I find that it's not that architects or or builders are, you know, incapable of learning this stuff or unwilling to. It's just that they don't get the opportunities that um, that they might otherwise do it just by virtue of how the profession is set up. So that's. Uh, that's where I am now in a nutshell. I'm focusing as, as much as I can on teaching. I started doing it a few years ago and enjoyed it a lot and found that I was pretty good at it and um, thought that I'd like to keep doing it both because, it's, you know, it's, I guess it's easy to teach stuff that you like. And uh, I find that I like it a whole lot, both the topic and the, and the teaching itself, which is good. I love how you've, you have these different multiple points of passion and interest and you've been able to take them and synthesize them into like one kind of like laser focus. I think that's a fantastic thing for everybody to aspire to. Yeah, you get kind of lucky sometimes. And I think that's been the case for me. What's funny as I focus more on teaching is that I realize that sometimes when you're learning, you forget that you're learning or you forget that you did learn. 
So I find like, for instance, I still get nervous when I speak in front of people. I really do. And uh, I, I hope I'm not visibly nervous. I don't, <laughs> right now. but um, I, every time I give a, a class or presentation to any number of people, especially strangers, I think to myself, gosh, you know, it's, um, this is a skill like any other. And it took me a long time to learn building science. It took me a long time to learn construction. So it's okay if it takes me a while to learn about public speaking. <laughs> it takes, takes practice like anything else. Yeah, I think some people who are very, very well-known public speakers that we all know actually still get uh, nervous <laughs> yeah, as, exactly. as well. So that's one of those things that, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a healthiness yeah, to that. True. Well, I want to ask you about your Instagram handle, which is uh, Building Science Fight Club. There has to be a story there. Yeah, it kind of started as a joke, actually. Um, I, I don't think I was the very first person, or I certainly wasn't the first person to use it, uh, but it started as a bit of a joke. I heard it from a colleague of mine, um, Foster Lyons, who is a building scientist. His background is in chemical engineering, and I, I heard him use it many years ago and thought it would be a, sort of a funny uh, Instagram username handle. I don't even know what they call him. I'm not technically mm-hmm. millennial, I don't think. But um, anyway, so I started it as a, as a joke, and then now it's become kind of a thing, so I feel like I can't change it. Not that I want to. It's a, I enjoy it. I think I worry a little bit that people take the fight part a little seriously. I don't, <laughs> there's, no, there's no literal fighting going on, and no, um, I hope we don't um, get too so into building science that we, you know, I don't know, are disrespectful to each other. It's meant to be playful, not, to, not literal, obviously. Well, it was one of my favorite movies growing up. So I'm particularly partial to it. I like it. I want to get philosophical for just a moment about the state of the industry. Recently in one of my builder forums, the topic of mold came up and the thread blew up immediately with different people expressing a range of opinions. And then someone reached out to um, a very recognizable name in the industry. and, And for the sake of Discretion, I'll just leave his name out in case for whatever reason he would want me to. Um, But he's one of your contemporaries in the industry, another very smart thought leader. And he said that the days of general contractors sequencing subcontractors needs to be over because the low bidding subcontractors survive. And that's at odds with the best systems and products for any particular climate. And He goes on to say that uh, because owners value the finishes in their home over the systems behind the walls, that allows builders to be complicit in continuing to push forward this irresponsible model of building. And he thinks that it'll probably take something like a big lawsuit to change the industry. So I'm actually in agreement with him on on almost all of this. You know, it's a pretty... uh, polarized opinion. And I think that it makes sense, actually, because I I do think there's a big problem. I think where I differ, and maybe this is just the the entrepreneur in me, is I think regulation, such as like a lawsuit, can be an effective catalyst to change, but it's almost always inferior to just innovation. And so for me, the better discussion is it revolves around solving this with probably better technology, you know, with the right technology technology that gets developed and then costs come down and systems that were previously unaffordable are now available to the masses. So 
you know, while we're developing technology, I would argue it's still not there yet, perhaps. And the market will tell us when it is there once we have these more universally adaptable or adoptable solutions. Now, all of this is just my opinion. I'm just curious where you fall out on all this. So, you know, I guess to you, is there a problem? And what, if any, do you, anything do you see as the solution? Wow, that is really <laughs> interesting. That's a, this is a fantastic topic. And uh, so I want to preface what I have to say by saying that I have very strong opinions about this. But I don't actually, I don't think I really have um, any kind of conclusive handle on the problem or solution. So here are my strong opinions. Uh, that yeah, just lay, lay them out. And if you're in disagreement with me, all, all the better. Uh, well, uh, here's how I think about this kind of stuff. So I think that our job in one form or another, everybody in the building industry, their job is in some respect to exercise professional judgment. It's to use everything that we know about design, about spatial relationships, about construction and materials and physics to help owners make the best decisions for their buildings based on what they value. Not based on what we wished they valued, but what they do value. At the same time, though, we need to use that same professional judgment to determine when it's appropriate to override their preferences. And that is really hard. And I think that, of course, we, we've got codes and we've got standards that keep us out of a whole lot of failure. But as any professional in this, in this business can tell you, there are practical limitations to our codes and our standards. And in our daily practice, we are almost never trying to decide like in some binary way uh, between a good decision and a bad decision, a good building and a bad building, or you know, success and failure. What we're really doing is making thousands of decisions, each one of them a compromise, aimed at aligning the design with the things that we value the most. And in this vein, I don't think that there's, so to speak philosophically, there can be no codified platonic ideal of a building because to design is to make difficult decisions. And it's in fact precisely the trade-offs that we make that afford us the flexibility to accommodate a great diversity of values and preferences and situations. So it's what lets us design warehouses differently than museums, both store stuff, right? Yep. But they're very different. Uh, dormitories can be different than motels. The house that we raise our children in is different than the investment property that we seek to rent out. And um, when we think in terms of those types of trade-offs, I think I think a lot of times the problems that we're trying to address are, are these big failures. And a lot of times, I think it's more appropriate not to think of these things as failures. Unfortunately, um, the, the sort of sad truth is that they're not really failures. What they are are consequences. A, a lot of building failures are really 
the unhappy consequences of bad decisions voluntarily made. And I don't think that we can codify our way out of that problem. People are going to value their kitchen finishes more, a lot of them more than they value indoor air quality. Um, and I think, yeah, to a certain extent, there are going to be some technological changes that are, it's going to make it so that it, we don't have to choose in such a radical way. And I think that's already happening, actually. The new construction houses that we're building now are way better in a lot of ways than a lot of buildings we were building in the, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. So I think we, we are tending towards that direction. But are there a lot of um, consequences, I won't say failures, along the way? Absolutely. And I think what makes that extremely difficult is that there's a lag time, right, in construction between the consequence and the, and the initial decision. You put your hand on a hot stove, it burns right away. But with a building, you don't follow good water management strategies. And um, I mean, if you're lucky, you have a problem right away. But I guess it's especially unlucky to have a problem five years in, six years in, seven years in, or right after if you've bought your home from a production home builder, right after the warranty is over, right? Yeah. So I, I recognize that there's a problem and and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of homeowners who, who don't really know what to do because it's very hard to make these decisions. Why you pick a builder or an architect is there's all kinds of reasons that you do this. And I'm very sympathetic to professionals who... Um, practice good water management strategies who try to educate themselves on all kinds of better ways of doing things, lose jobs to the lowest bidder. But I also recognize that, you know, part of what we're selling, some people just aren't going to be interested in. And some of it is belly aching about, well, I wish people liked what I am good at more than they do. And they don't, they like pretty things. Yeah. Um, sort of a sad reality. And I don't, I don't know that we get around that by coming up with a better code. Maybe we do, but with better technologies, I may, maybe that's, I haven't thought about that part of it, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't really, I mean, I, I don't think I'm in a, in a position to, to really intelligently opine on the specifics, but whatever it is, I know that it's not just a simple solution. I know this is, is going to be something that is, going to take a lot of change on many, many levels um, to accomplish. I worry that, that maybe we've outpaced ourselves, and this was my next question, or that we now build our homes so airtight that maybe um, not everybody, I'll say a lot of builders, maybe a lot of us don't understand because of the long feedback loop, some of the consequences of what that means to build these tight homes without a lot of the accompanying systems that need to be in place. Do you do you feel like that's something that is going to be a, a growing problem in future years? Uh, I mean, I think there's we're we've already seen some of the problems right now with with some of that, but I think it's mostly something that um, we're very well equipped to to address, uh, especially residentially. This stuff is, yeah, building science is hard, and there's a lot of sort of variables at play, but it isn't rocket science. And building airtight homes, I think, is ultimately a very, very good thing. And I hope that some of this change that you know, we sort of have alluded to previously will come from 
homes being, especially newer, higher end ones being just so much better. An airtight home, a well-designed, airtight, well-insulated home is so much more comfortable than than one that isn't. Noticeably so. They're quieter. They've got fewer pest problems. Occupants will no, have no, a noticeable effect on allergies, asthma. Um, they're just thermally more comfortable. They're just, they are noticeably more comfortable. And as occupants, as homeowners, you know, experience this, I, I hope anyway, maybe I'm a little bit too much of an optimist that they'll start um, looking for that kind of quality uh, or their neighbors will start looking for that kind of quality when, when it's time for them to build a house or renovate a house. Um, so I hope that's the case. As for the risk management portion of it, it's not that hard to flash a window properly. Most of our problems are pretty basic ones. Um, and I think that basic water management, I think, is not beyond the reach of, of an average to good contractor. You can yeah. figure this out. It's not that hard. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is the mechanical systems design. And that's also a little bit, sometimes a little bit out of our, our range as design professionals, right? It, we have to, we're at the mercy of, of the codes for a lot of this stuff. And um, that's going to mean that we're going to need responsible leadership in setting ventilation rates at the appropriate level. Right now, if you ventilate to ASHRAE 62.2 standards, which is not required by the code in any state except for California, you are way over ventilating your house and you're going to need to provide separate dehumidification most of the time. And if you don't do that, that's going to lead to a different issue. So I guess there's two areas where we need to respond. One is in the enclosure, um, water management in, in our design. And then the second is in the mechanical system stuff. But neither one is um, is rocket science. We, I, it's absolutely within the scope of, of an attentive builder. Um, I think we can, we already are stepping up to this kind of stuff. I'm sure you've worked with, there's people that as you in your profession seek to hire different subs, there's probably a huge variety in the skills, but it's not like it's hard to find people to install windows the way you want, or, or there's, there's a lot of education and guidance out there. Um, it's maybe not always fun to devote the resources to doing it, but I think we're more than capable of it. Yeah. You just actually transitioned really well into the next topic I wanted to hit on, which is, you, you know, you were talking about a few examples. So for instance, you know, properly flashing windows is something that should be uh, financially accessible to every builder. Um, perhaps, you know, access to the top, the best HVAC design and systems, maybe not as accessible. So I guess what, what I'm curious about though, is on that front, how does a builder who isn't necessarily an expert in building science go about improving their construction so that they truly are building, you know, the most high performing homes that that is available to the band of homes that they that they build. So, you know, mid range up to high end. I mean, besides all the awesome info on your Instagram page, which is very helpful. Are there any other resources that just, you know, package this up and make it simple for people to understand? So a lot of the stuff that I see, the crazy, crazy shenanigans when you're just out and about and watching, I'm sure, I'm sure probably everybody listening to this podcast in the industry has the experience of driving around and like pulling over the car to see what some construction site is doing. And <laughs> anyway, yep. 
So when I drive around and I see stuff that is, um, you know, egregiously bad, usually it's stuff that is covered in the installation instructions from the manufacturer. You know, certainly there are more creative ways of screwing up houses, but the most common problems are uh, related to literally to not following the the installation instructions. So yeah, there's lower risk ways of flashing a window. So go do your research and you can investigate that kind of stuff. But at a minimum, just follow the instructions. Um, So that's, that's sort of one level is, um, is just following the instructions. Um, And the second area where I see a lot of mistakes is in sequencing. So for example, it's where trades come together. So um, someone will not tie the balcony waterproofing in with the water control layer of the wall because the cladding is already up. So they'll terminate, you know, wa- balcony waterproofing to the face of brick, say, as opposed yeah. to the water control layer behind the brick. Now, why would the sub installing the balcony waterproofing do that? He would do that if when he arrives at the job, the brick's already installed. Now, that's not really his fault, right? It's not the brick guy's fault. It's not the balcony guy's fault. But we have a problem really in coordination. So we've installed finished materials before we finished the control functions in the adjacent construction. And that is a super common problem. And that's an organization problem, not really a design problem. And it's certainly not a, a manufacturing defect or anything. And, and that's tricky because th- the way our industry is organized is we don't really have jack of all trades. We have different trades that do different things and they, they specialize in just these things and um, coordinating among them is difficult. And, and I think, and here's where good contractors really and builders really excel over sort of average ones. A lot of, especially on the commercial side, you see a lot of, a lot of general contractors view themselves as being basically just brokers. So I go hire mm-hmm. subs and the subs do the work. Whereas a, a true general contractor and a successful one is really is a coordinator and is looking needs to be looking much more big picture than that to avoid avoid risk and that's what a lot of this is it's what can I do to minimize risk um, you're never gonna you're always gonna have some of it but what's the where's everybody needs to decide for themselves where their sweet spot is um, at a certain point it's it's not worth it to, to spend an incremental dollar to reduce the risk. It would be cheaper to just fix it after there's a problem. But then there's obviously a lot of foolishness as well in that you're really rolling the dice. It might not cost you anything to reduce your risk um, if you did it right the first time. Yeah. And I want to come back to the first comment you made about just reading the instructions, which sounds very simple. And it, and it is. Yeah. But that is so common for people to um, get your window package, hand it over to whoever's installing your windows and just let them follow the way that they are used to doing it, which very, very possibly, quite possibly does not follow the install and specs of per that, that window manufacturer, for example. And um, it's important to know just from a practical standpoint that if soon as you deviate from any manufacturer's install instruction, they're off the hook. If there's something that goes wrong, whereas you might be able to, to 
draw upon them in the event that something did go wrong in the future, assuming you you can document and show that you followed their install inspects. As soon as you deviate, it's all on you. So there's huge risk to the general contractor in deviating from manufacturer install specs. I don't think that's talked about enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually of two minds on that. In a certain sense, the number one way to reduce your uh, risk of like a lawsuit or something like that or callback is to not have a problem in the first place. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes you'll have people that will follow manufacturers' specifications even when they actually know that it's probably not the best option for their individual case, but they want to preserve the warranty. And that I think is, is just as foolish. Um, so yeah, manufacturers are, are humans too, right? And so they can get stuff wrong as well. Um, so you have to sometimes make an intelligent choice between competing interests, but, um, but yeah, all things being equal, come on guys, at least read the instructions so that you know, know what the rule is before you break it. And, and if you need to break it, maybe get permission to. Right. Um, well, and, and maybe, maybe there's a way to, oh, if there's a, issue with the manufacturer install specs to kind of accomplish what you're saying and not do something foolish. Exactly. Um, just deviate on the side of over protecting or doing the, making the, the proper adjustment. If that makes sense. I don't know if I'm articulating that very well. Yeah, yeah it does. Unfortunately, sometimes people don't know what that is. Um, but for example, if there's, if there's the window manufacturers have a different recommendation on the installation of their windows than the water control membrane manufacturers. Yeah. In which case, by the way, just a piece of advice here. I know we're talking philosophically, but just on a practical level, follow the WRB manufacturers stuff on that when there's attention. Don't don't listen to the window guys. Um, <laughs> Good to know. Because they assume there went because you as a designer are responsible for the window to wall interface. The window manufacturer is just responsible for the window. And they they're yeah. going to assume that their window doesn't leak, but their windows yeah. all leak. <laughs> <laughs> they don't always leak all the time, but they will sometimes leak. So um, follow the WRB manufacturer's recommendations on that. If you're using Tyvek, go follow DuPont's instructions on it. If you're using, um, if you're using Zip, follow Zip. If you're using, you know, whatever the case is, um, and they're okay. and pretty good. They offer, you know, step by step in 3D recommendations on how to do it. It's um, it's a weirdly untapped resource a lot of the time. Yeah. Okay. Awesome advice. That's great to know. Um, I've got. One question to wrap this up. I just, this is maybe a, a cheap question to ask of you, but I, I just can't avoid it. Um, <laughs> okay. can, yeah. So here it is. Uh, can you think of any quote unquote performance improvements we can make to our, our homes as builders that either save a save B cost, no additional money or C cost very little. Oh yeah. I think, I mean, the low hanging fruit right now in residential construction is um, air sealing. That is the low, the lowest hanging fruit in terms of, well, okay, you know what? I'm going to answer your question two ways. Um, I'm going to answer in terms of, give two different answers, one in terms of risk mitigation and then the other in terms of performance improvements. Air sealing is the number one thing that you can do in a residential construction that noticeably improves things for the occupants. Uh, like I, I think I said this earlier, homes that are airtight are um, more thermally comfortable. They perform better acoustically. There's better indoor air quality. You have a reduction in pests, in odors, in every in dust, in allergens. 
these homes are noticeably more comfortable. Um, now, how you get there is really relatively easy. Uh, switching from a mechanically attached water control layer to something like zip or a fully adhered membrane or a fluid applied membrane is a great, great, great idea. And uh, I, I highly recommend doing that. Your homes become almost effortlessly more airtight, which is great. Um, when you do that, pay attention to the big holes in your building, balconies, soffits, overhangs, um, the where, where your wall meets your slab and where your, where your wall meets your roof. You start air sealing these areas and you really, it's, this is low hanging fruit. It might cost you, it might cost you nothing. Um, it might cost you, I don't know, a tiny bit more. Now, if you, if you end up switching to, I don't know, more fancy fluid applied membrane or fully adhered membrane, then you start actually having some incremental costs there. But it is low hanging fruit and people are noticeably more comfortable. Second way of answering the question, what can be done from a from a risk mitigation perspective? So the number one non-structural and non-fire related failures are related to water. So water management is obviously a, a really big deal. Um, I think picking systems and details that are more intuitive to detail are tend to get the best results. So speaking of fluid applied membranes and um, integral systems like uh, sheathing plus water and air control membranes like, like zip system um, or Georgia Pacific makes a version as well. Uh, Dens element is their commercial version. Uh, anyway, stuff like that those tend to be more intuitive to detail. And when things are more intuitive, you reduce mistakes. Those are the two things that I can think about off the top of my head. There's, I'm certain there's more, but um, no, that's perfect. The two that are on my mind for now. Yeah, that, that's perfect. I do want to um, make sure that listeners know where to find you online. So your Instagram is at building science fight club. Is that the best place or is there anywhere else to send? No, that's the, that's the best place to find me. Building Science Fight Club, I post once a week. And the idea is to learn, I guess really it's it's geared more towards architects, but builders are, anybody in the building industry, I think can really benefit from it. And uh, I, I try to answer or tackle one topic per week. So it's just a, once a week on weekends that I post. And I also have a website, but I guess I, I don't have too much on it in terms of teaching. So New teaching stuff. If you like learning one thing at a time and you're more visual, a visual learner, and then it, Building Science Fight Club on Instagram is a good, a good place to go. Yeah, and it is an awesome place to go and learn. So, um, well, Christine, this has been an honor to interview you. I really uh, enjoyed it and learned a lot and uh, hope we can do it again in the future. I hope so. You're you're only uh, in Austin, so maybe we can get together next next time I end up yeah. down that way for a conference or something. I'm sure. I think it was it your second question on um, the way the industry is organized and the way that we price risk in, in yeah. its business is. Um, I think it's endlessly interesting to me, and it's it's a real challenge to to all of us. So maybe that that definitely could you could have a whole podcast series on that alone. Yeah, I'm always up for a good philosophical discussion, by the way. Well, good, good. All right. Well, Christine, thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you.